In this episode, Empowering Youth, Preserving Culture, Ryan host Emilio Rodriguez, Artistic Director of Black and Brown Theater, and Quantum, an unstoppable choreographer and performer of JIT and Funketeering. Each discusses the way they utilize dance and theater to inspire youth and amplify culturally rooted and produced art forms. This episode was recorded remotely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Detroit. We are talking to some of Detroit's most amazing artists today. My name is Ryan Myers Johnson. I'm the executive director of Sidewalk Detroit, and I have the pleasure of being in dialogue today with Emilio Rodriguez, playwright and founder of Black and Brown Theater, as well as Ron Ford, dancer, choreographer, and musician, and longtime uh, proponent of Detroit JIT and Funketeer dance styles. Uh, welcome, Ron and Emilio. Hello. Hi, thanks for having us both. Thank you. Great to have you here. So your projects for Art X Detroit um, were amazing, and you're really exploring um, the Detroit landscape in really unique ways. In your work in general, I'm just a, an avid, avid fan. So if we could start with Emilio, could you just tell us a bit more about your practice, about Black and Brown Theater, and what has brought you to make art in Detroit? Yeah, so I... Um actually moved to Detroit um, about eight years ago uh, for a teaching position. And I identify as a playwright, but also director and theater maker at large. And um, I started Black and Brown Theater about four years ago. Um, and the goal was to, to see more diversity in Detroit stages and also more cross-cultural connections happening on Detroit stages. And it's just continued to sort of expand from there um, with the more now more broad statement of creating opportunities for theater artists of color and the communities they are already a part of. Ron, tell us about your practice and your history of making work in Detroit. Okay, um, short version. <laughs> so I've been dancing and uh, choreographing dance here in Detroit for over 35 years. I uh, started with basic JIT, which is what we all kind of did, and a more um, specialized dance called Detroit Funk. So I started pretty much before high school um, through a group called, uh, well, different groups, Cosmic Crew to Unstoppables. Uh, I performed, you know, different places for uh, Detroit Tech Fest, uh, the palace, overseas. Right now, I'm just trying to showcase to Detroit, uh, first and foremost, their own culture. Because uh, older people know about it, but the younger ones don't quite know everything about it. So I'm utilizing my music production, performances, choreography, and just being a part of the JIT community to showcase their dances, their own native dances. Wow, the native dances of Detroit. I grew up knowing about JIT for sure and admiring, um, I guess, jitters, but the knowledge that it's a native dance of Detroit, I think was lost on me. 
Um, it's such an intricate and specialized dance form. Is there a way that we could put it into words for our listening audience? What is JIT and funk and Detroit funk? Okay, so JIT and funk are closely related uh, by way of the shuffle, which is all footwork. I can't really explain how this the shuffle works, but it's all footwork, whereas it's not arm work or upper body, it's mostly footwork, okay? The JIT is mostly a, um, it utilizes legs and feet, whereas Funketeer utilizes the whole body. Funketeer has more of a, uh, what we would call a pop to it, and it utilizes all parts of the body, whereas JIT, again, is more so leg work, although it has some arm work involved. They're both based off of funk music, which has turned to, in Detroit, over the years, Detroit techno, which is... Uh, Detroit techno is electronic funk music. So the funk doesn't leave. It's still here. It's just faster. That's awesome. Yeah, fast, I think, is a big part of the story. The, the speed at which um, the movement happens is um, can be quite astonishing in improvisation and also that re strong relationship to um, Detroit music. Um, very powerful stuff. I mean, you talked about um, reaching young people and telling the stories of young people. So that um, leads me to just want to dive a little bit more into your work, Emilio, um, for AXD Detroit and um, working with young people. Um, can you give us an overview of what your uh, work was and how you involved young people? Yes. So um, the project we created was called Our Voices. Um, and essentially, a lot of us had in the company had it had experience um, in teaching and um, being theater teaching artists and working with youth. But typically, those who are familiar with um, theater for young for young people, the model is typically that an adult is in charge or young people are performing a script written by an adult and directed by an adult. Um, so we wanted to flip that around and see what it would be like if young people were writing the scripts and directing the scripts and they were um, writing for and directing adults. And so we had um, adult professional actors from our company perform the scripts that were written by these middle and high school students and the middle and high school students were giving the direction to the adults and sort of seeing in real time how direction works and how leadership works and how a uh, scene can change and evolve by mm. the direction that you give. That sounds illuminating and empowering and scary at the same time. So what, what sort of differences did you encounter as an artist um, letting young people take the lead? I think exactly what you said. It was both empowering and scary at the same time, but also so, so much fun. I think we learned so much about what young people have to say and what is important to them. Oftentimes we label what is important to them or what is an interest to them. Um, so having the young people, the students step up and say, this is what I want to write about and this is what's important to me. Um, and then also sometimes the way that adults, we can act as uh, teenagers based on our perception of what it was to be a teenager. Um, and then when we get notes from them, you realize that uh, to a teenager, 
their experience is just as important as our experiences as adults. And so sometimes when we play teenagers, we downplay it like, oh, prom, this is the end of the world. Uh, but but to them, it, it you know, canceling prom can feel just as exactly the same way we feel with our gigs getting canceled and our work getting canceled. And so um, just that really teaches empathy mm. in a way that was interesting for both sides, that young people could have a better understanding of the connections that they have to to adults as mentors and resources. And then for um, those older adult actors to have a better understanding of what it is to be a teenager and that they have real valid experiences and real valid emotions, just like adults do. And what type of topics were the kids exploring in their plays? It was such a range, especially because we had middle school through high school. And um, the high school class we were working with was um, all grades. Uh, and the middle school was also six through eight. So um, we had everything from a lost, a lost dog to teenage pregnancy and everything in between. So it really showed a variety of what teenagers are writing about and what's on their mind and that teenagers, just like any human being, it's not a monolithic experience. And there's um, such a variety of what is and is not important. Mm. Yeah, Ron, I know that you have a, a decent amount of experience with young people um, as an educator and as a father. Um, could you talk a bit about um, working with um, the different types of crowds that you work with? Um, I know that there tends to be, or at least I've observed, you know, an educational component in your in your way of performing. Yeah, so I deal with all ages as far as um the dance goes. Uh, so I dance with my children. I taught them how to dance first, uh, as far as funk, more so than jit. I think because they've been around me longer, so they see me do funk dance more than jit. So it came to them easier. Uh, once I did that, I figured out that it can be taught, but it has to be taught at very, very basic level. So right now, what I'm doing is coming up with a way to teach high school students funk and a little jit uh, by way of a grant uh, that I received. So we're going to start off with slow music, slow funk music like the 70s type music, how it first came out, you know, which would be uh, a little different for them because they're not used to old funk music. But they, 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 they can work on rhythm. You know, they can work on rhythm first and then we can speed the music up a little bit and get into more uh, intricate dance parts of the, of the, uh, the styles. Wow. So it's it's interesting, like thinking about my experience growing up as a as a kid in Detroit. I'm not that young. So I definitely remember when everybody knew about jitting and could jit. Um, so I'm curious, what are, do the young people know about jit and funketeer now? Or um, is it a new form for them? It's, it's it's a new form for them. They've seen it. Some some kids have seen it by way of their parents is what I'm learning. But once they find out that this is their dance, it empowers them. Because right now, kids are just following each other on, you know, social media. 
they they repeat what they see. They don't really know who they are or, or what their city has contributed to dance. They don't know that we're a Mecca Center for Arts. So this dance empowers them once they find out, hey, we have a dance. You know, we don't have to do the same little TikTok things that we see and, and video dances that last for maybe a, a summer. This is a this is a, a culture. So once they get hold of it, you know, the, the beauty for me is for them to learn a little of it and then take it where they want to. You know, I, I try to teach basics and fundamentals and tradition, but I like for them to experiment and take it places where we wouldn't have thought of. Because we're, you know, I'm older. I'm older, so that's what I want to see. You know, I just want them to have the basics first. You both are doing amazing work in the community, um, creating opportunities um, to empower young people to embrace the arts. And um, Ron, you mentioned social media. So, you know, we're living in a time of uh, a pandemic. And so, so much of our lives are online now. So how are you adapting um, your work and how are you um, experiencing um, these quarantine situations as an artist in Detroit? First of all, as an artist, it's totally different from me as a parent and husband here in the household, obviously, because I have four children here and they're younger children. They're 13 and, and younger. And I have a college student that comes here every now and then from, from uh, Grand Valley State. So that's different from how I am as an artist here. As an artist, boy, I, I am finding uh, uh, lots of time to do things I wanted to do, to be honest. I'm jumping on my treadmill, getting more in yeah. shape. So when this thing passes over, I will be ready, <laughs> yeah. you know, more than ready. Uh, also, I'm in the studio in my, you know, in my own personal studio, creating music for uh, a Jit the Funk Up and Dance Part Two uh, because I had a great turnout and uh, I can't wait to do it again. So I'm working on music for that. Also, I'm choreographing uh, steps to go with new songs. Mm. And just refreshing myself with older songs. I have so many ideas. It's just, I'm sure Emilio can can attest to that. But I have so many ideas, and and now is the time to actually sit down and and work on them. At least jot yeah, them down. Yeah. You know. So that's that's what I've been doing as an artist. Wow. So it's it's amazing the amount of resiliency that artists are showing and kind of utilizing some of this time to go deeper into their practice. Um, I can't wait to see. You know what. Jit the funk up. No, shut up and jit. <laughs> I can't wait to see part two of your work and what comes out of it um, as you're able to kind of go deeper into your practice. Yeah, Emilio, uh, what's going on with you in Black and Brown Theater? Yeah, as Ron mentioned, part of it is the the personal stuff. I'm going for jogs, social distancing jogs by myself, um, but uh, trying to stay in shape physically and mentally in that aspect. Um, and then as far as black and brown theater, we're we're sort of throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what um, people are most interested in. And um, one of the most 
successful things was something we had never even thought of, which was um, sort of an expansion of, of this uh, series we have for for our younger audiences and, and for families. And so um, we saw some people reading stories, some celebrities were reading stories um, on Instagram. And so we thought, what if we have one of our company members who usually dresses up as a, a princess anyways for some of the shows if she were to do that and then read the stories. But instead of um, reading a traditional story, we would kind of mix it up and take suggestions from the audience and plug in the words that the audience says into this story so that it became something that the that the audience had investment in. And, and it's kind of a, a route that we do with our, our really young ones when we're teaching um, uh, playwriting for like kindergartners mm. uh, because um, a lot of kindergartners are still learning how to to write. So that's sort of one of our foundational practices. So it's just been able to move um, that online and then hopefully see what else we can create online, depending on what people are excited about. Okay. You said uh, playwriting for kindergartners. <laughs> I know I asked the pandemic question, but this one is actually really interesting. How does that work? Playwriting for kindergartners. So actually our first time was going to be this, it was March through May was our session. And so it was cut off. We were about four weeks in and we started um, with the that process of um, getting suggestions and plugging them into an already solidified story. And then we switched into the um, storyboard um, where they were telling us their ideas. And then we switched into drawing and we were just about to step into the part of transforming all of those ideas into uh, a physical script when COVID hit. So unfortunately, we weren't able to finish that, but it was really fun to get to to see their ideas come to life. And I'm excited to see if there's a way we can transfer that digitally. And it's just a matter of getting connected with those families. Wow, that is super exciting. And it's super innovative. I've never imagined, um, you know, of course, we have like programs for kids to do theater, but to do playwriting is, I think, taking it to a whole nother level. And what an expectation you seem to have of young people and their ability to um, create work. Where does that come from? I think I would have to give all the credit in the world to my mother because she was um, a preschool teacher and she taught at a Montessori and she never like talked down to us growing up and she always encouraged us to think big and and even as a kid, because of her, I, I learned to read pretty early. Um, so when she would try to read me bedtime stories and I was in preschool, I would say, I already know this one. What if it went like this instead? <laughs> and so that's how I started getting the like wow. writing bug was just like, I don't want to hear this bedtime story again. I, I want it to end like this. And she would encourage that instead of saying like, no, 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 just listen to the story. She'd be like, okay, so what the, then what happens? And then what happens? Um, and so I noticed myself using phrases like that when I was teaching the kindergarten. Okay, and then what happens? And then what happens? And so I think I definitely have to give all the credit in the world to my mother. And I know everyone here probably has someone who started their artistic career. But I think if I were to trace it back to one specific person, it would probably be her. All hail to the moms. Um, so interesting in thinking about like, who are those people that we kind of owe something to and who's in the lineage of our practice. Ron, are there other, um, folks in the JIT and Funka tier 
world that um, have been impactful for your work? Yeah, uh, well, first of all, from the music standpoint, it was my stepdad. I started listening to music. Uh, I think he bought me a record player at maybe seven years old. Yeah, so between seven mm-hmm. and 10, I would listen to music on my little record player, uh, which turned into Earth, Wind, and Fire. And once that came out, the, 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 the artistry of the album itself, you remember the artwork and then uh, the group switch, the artwork and, and the, the funk music behind it, that set me up for dance, that that funk music, that one, two, uh, which turned into Jit and Waving and Robot and things like that. As far as dancers who influenced me, uh, of course, I would have to say uh, James Brown when I was very young. Mm. Everything points to funk with me, you know? James Brown, mm-hmm. then uh, later on was uh, Funkadelics. Parliament, mm. which is what they used to jit and Earl Flynn to when I was a young guy. I was 12 looking up to these older guys at the basement parties doing these funny dances to funk music. Uh, then, of course, it was Michael nice. Jackson, who we looked at in Detroit. At my age, we looked at Michael Jackson as not really someone that was so, um, um, he was creative, but he didn't originate dances. We looked at somebody that mastered dances because we knew mm. Moonwalk. We knew Waving. Mm. We knew Robotics. He was a person I looked up as a person that masters. He masters dances. So that's something I try yeah. to do. I try to master dances so I can pass that on to others. Wow. Yeah, you mentioned the, the basement party and you talk about um, your early history or early education as a we did you have a teacher or how or was this more of a collective sort of community learning process like when it comes to jitting I think about like when I was a kid learning to dance I can't think about like learning a specific dance from a teacher but more so you learn it from seeing people doing it could you talk a bit more about how how did you learn how to jit did someone sit you down and teach you yeah, for me, somebody actually taught me uh, basic shuffles. Uh, and so I grew up, a lot of people do learn like that. They learn by just watching. And I've learned some things like that. But for me personally, I appreciated learning from a person because it, mm-hmm. it ended up feeling like it was more part of a, a bloodline in dance. So when it came to JIT, I had a guy who taught me basic steps. In Detroit, I would watch and learn, but I would always try to get with somebody later on in a corner, maybe, and have me go over the techniques of the dance so that I know I'm doing it right. When it came to funk, there was a group of guys who were doing it before me, and they put me into the dance group and taught me. So I learned I learned that style of uh, what they called it pop locking, but it was basically funketeering. And then eventually, mm-hmm. what I do now mostly is Detroit funk, which is uh, it's an evolution of funketeer. 
Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. The, referring to like receiving the dance moves and receiving this education as a bloodline, that really, um, that's powerful. It was a powerful way to talk about um, your practice. And so I'm wondering, I'm curious about what's on the horizon for you all. Of course, we are facing a lot of unknowns in the arts community. Um, what are the type of things that are on your mind that you want to explore creatively in your art practice? Well, me personally, what what, what I want to jump into is uh, I have a play that I wrote uh, maybe two years ago. It's a play that built around, of course, the native dances. Uh, so it tells the story of JIT and funk in Detroit for the community, by the community, with the community actually performing the dances, their own specific groups, showing you where they sit in this heritage of our dances. So that's something mm -hmm. I'm really excited about uh, exploring and getting the finances for that. Uh, I also mentioned the Jitta Funk Up and Dance Part 2, which I'm looking forward to doing. Also, the uh, teaching high schools, like you said, we don't know what the future really holds, but when high schools do open up, I'm jumping right into that to pass mm. this on to the high schoolers. Wow. Those are my I'm main three. That's a that's a I'm lot. Is the is the play a musical? Uh, is the play a musical? I wouldn't call, I, I, I wouldn't call it a musical. Um, mm. I wouldn't call it a musical. Although, of course, music is throughout the whole play. Mm. It's more of a um. I don't want to give up the plot, but it's it is <laughs> okay. It, <laughs> it it's of course dance music. Detroit music is throughout the whole play. But there are, say, three actors, three main actors who are going through a situation, a dilemma. And by way of this dilemma, you're seeing the story of JIT unfold one group at a time from this very beginning in the 70s to mm. the future with the kids taking over. Nice. Wow. Historian yeah. of Native Detroit dances, Ron Ford, you continue to amaze. What about you, uh, Emilio? What are you thinking? What's what's interesting to you? What do you want to explore next? Um, so there were two projects we were supposed to be working on um this summer. So it's just a matter of us talking to those grant they were grant funded projects, um, talking mm. to those grant funders and seeing if they would be okay with us moving to digital platforms for these. Um, I've actually been teaching a lot. The, all of my classes for adults have been moved online. Unfortunately, all of my classes with youth have been just um, canceled for now um, or postponed indefinitely. Um, but mm. the adult classes all been, have all been moved online. And so I'm getting really comfortable with Zoom and Microsoft Teams and different <laughs> platforms um, to teach. Uh, and so I'm wondering if this, uh, we had had another Our Voices plan, but it was specifically for seniors. Um, in uh wow. to write stories and then we would perform their stories um and so we're trying to see if that could be something we could switch online teaching the classes through zoom and then uh, maybe once restrictions get a little bit looser we can have small groups of maybe like four actors in one room um recording those scenes together um and then putting them on youtube or some other platform and then the other one was um 
our fairy tale series that we bring to the schools and to the libraries. Um, and so we're going to ask the grant funders if we can record that um, and make it more a little bit more cinematic um, and, and seeing if that's something that would still uh, work. And it would definitely be a new venture for us, but something that I'm excited to see if it's if it's possible and as exciting for people recorded as, as it is live. Wow, you're really venturing into some unique t- territory and important territory. Um, we talked about your work with kids, but you also have an iteration of this that is reaching out to seniors. So Black and Brown Theater is really going, um, you're not just uplifting the voices of uh, Black and Brown people, but you're specifically looking at, um, I guess, maybe creatively underserved populations within uh, the Black and Brown community, looks like. So how exciting yeah, for that. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you, you hit it there with like getting really specific about who it's for. And I think the beauty of getting really specific is that um, it then becomes ironically even more general. For example, like this fairy tale series, um, we were like, okay, we're targeting three to seven-year-old children and then their families can come along with them. And what we found was when we started taking this to libraries and and different public arenas, there was um, oftentimes uh, people in their 30s and 20s, 30s and 40s um, that didn't have kids with them. And we were kind of caught off guard, like, wait, where's their kid? This, I thought they were bringing their kid to the show. But then we realized, like, for a lot of us, even myself as a, a 30-year-old growing up, we didn't have a lot of um, representation of people of color in this, in the fairy tale world and in the stories for right. young people. And so this is like, for some people, it kind of feels like they're living vicariously through the, this next wave um, and so they're getting to like revisit their childhood and allow themselves to be a child again and see what they should have been able to see if the media had gotten the representation correctly back when we were younger. Mm. How illuminating. I mean, I imagine that that opens up an incredible amount of possibilities within the mind of a young person to see themselves represented in fairy tales. You know, when you think about um, I guess your stories that come from a Eurocentric perspective anyway, thinking about like Rapunzel or, um, you know, Hansel and Gretel, like these kind of things, or Jack and the Beanstalk, you don't see um, yourself in those stories. So are you taking stories from different um, black and brown, I guess, diaspora, or are you focusing on sort of the traditional stories that come through the American sort of fairy tale pipeline? Is that clear? Yeah, um, a mix of all of the above. So um, currently working on, and and also when we take um, the European stories, we also want to um, have creative license to do whatever we want with them and change them. So mm-hmm. like an example, the one we were working on with was Beauty and the Beast and um, thinking about why does a beast have to transform? Like, why can't we just accept someone the way that they are? What What is this whole obsession with, like, I will change you and I will fix you back to how I am, um, rather than uh. saying, like, you are what you are, I am what I am, and both are valid experiences. Um, so in that sense, we do, like, kind of take traditional material, um, but we play with it and make it whatever we want it to be and whatever we feel speaks with our audience. And then also at the same time, we're also looking into stories that... Um, are are not from that canon. Um, we are really inspired and and currently working on it's it's a longer process than we anticipated, but um, a, a true story about 
a young lady who is black, Cuban, and Asian descent. And in Cuba, she was the first um, girl to play drums in public. Um, And so that we're like really interested in in that story. And so uh, I guess the answer is yes, and Uh, we say (laughs) whatever, whatever feels like an important story to tell at that time. Wow, this in actually, that's such a inspiring story to think about, you know, this person who has this really broad um, cultural background they're coming from that also breaks barriers. Um, it reminded me, Ron, of one of the names you go by, which is Mr. Impossible, right? Am I right oh, about that? Mr. Unstoppable. Mr. Unstoppable, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where does that come from? And what are you trying to tell people by calling yourself Mr. Unstoppable? You know, that's a good question. And I wish more in the community would ask that question because it's, it's kind of <laughs> it's not going over their heads. They're just kind of missing the point because my group is called Unstoppables. So they think that mm. a lot of my things are just dealing with my dance group. The song, We Are Unstoppable, Mr. Unstoppable. They think I'm just, you know, it's an old to my dance group, but it's really for everyone in the community and outside of the community. Mr. Unstoppable is just a song mm. that says, no one can stop me. It's that simple. No one can stop me. Not the closest people to me. I mean, family, wives, children. No one can stop me. You know, it's in my heart to do certain things with art, and that's what I would do. That's what the song is about, Mission Stop. I won't stop. <laughs> I am mad. I received that. I think that this is a message that um, is in the heart of Detroit and deeply embedded within Detroit artists. You all are just representing, um, I would say, like the finest spirit that we have here, which just keeps hustling harder. Um, so yeah. I'm just so excited about the work that you're doing as you translate it to online. And I can't wait to see what comes out of uh, the next phase. What's up, Ron? One, one more thing I wanted to say with that unstoppable message was it really kicked in with me uh, when my son passed away several years ago. Mm-hmm. My my oldest son named after me, Ronald Ford III. And some things that he he would teach me things. I taught him so much. He was the type of person that could turn it around, was able to teach me, the the, the older guy, the, the parent, the dad. And something he said to me was, uh, dad, if you're going to be unstoppable, you have to show that you're unstoppable. It's not enough to say it and believe it. You have to have action. So my whole thing has been action. Without explaining it, I don't have to explain it to no one. You understand? I don't have to verify things with others. This is why I do this. This is why I do that. My actions will speak for itself. I I don't stop. I keep it moving. I keep it going. Whatever my belief is, that's what it is. And you will see it. Not just hear it. Mm, That's amazing. That's really powerful. Thank you for sharing that. And I think... um, as you know, we kind of face, you know, family and friends and, you know, loss of loved ones and loss of community here. It's a really important message. And thank you for just bringing the words of your um, son into the, into the space and into the room and sharing that with us. Um, so 
with that, I, I want to encourage us all, everyone listening to be unstoppable, to keep looking forward and to keep giving back to our community, no matter what we're facing. So <laughs> thank you so much, Ron and Emilio. You all are keepers of the flame and just uh, really trailblazing new pathways for yourselves and for other people in the city of Detroit. I'm Ryan Myers-Johnson, reporting from Detroit, Michigan. Thank you for having me here. This is Quantum out of Detroit, Michigan. Stay on stop. Bye, everyone. This is Emilio Rodriguez. Uh, stay positive. Stay hopeful. Thanks for having me. That's it, y'all. Thank you for listening. AXD Living X Podcast is a production of Root of Two and made possible with support from the Kresge Foundation. Mixed and edited by Red Carpet Lounge. Music for the series is by Pamela Wise. To find out more about the projects and artists, visit artxdetroit.com and download the companion Living X catalog featuring all 22 commissioned AXD works. Thank you.